This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Philippians chapter 3. Now we had just broken into the chapter last week. We got into the first two paragraphs. First one, the first paragraph is very short. And we got into the details on the second paragraph where he says, for we are the circumcision. He gives a warning in verse two. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. If there's any question about who he's talking about here when he mentions dogs, evil workers, and the concision, then it's revealed, it's implied that it was whether heathen proselytizers trying to reach out to get people into their heathen religions or more than likely Judaizers. And that was a constant and a recurring threat in the early years of the Christian church. Well-meaning Jews and in some cases not so well-meaning Jews, that resented the liberty that Christians have in Christ Jesus, because you have to remember that the law of Moses, under which the Jews lived, was, uh, compared to the liberty in Christ, it was very confining. It was a very constraining law. There were a lot of things that otherwise would not be a problem, would not be an issue, or would not be wrong, that were an issue under the law of Moses for different reasons. And so seeing the liberty that Christians had in Christ Jesus, it's like it could create a, the, the impression in a person's mind that these Gentile believers have appropriated our Messiah or our concept of a Messiah and are using that as an occasion to live in all of this allowance and freedom and so on. And so that was something that Judaizers, which is people that sought to bring people under the Jewish law of Moses, it's something that Judaizers really resented at times. And so they worked hard to try to get Christians under the law, to bind them under the law of Moses. And I haven't met many people like that in my own Christian walk, but I've had a run-in with one or two of them that were just really... They were just all about the law, and they kept trying to convince me that I had to abide by these different tenets, and that, other, that all Christians have to abide by these different tenets that are contained within the law of Moses, completely missing the point of the gospel, missing the point of the law even, which Paul reveals later on in the New Testament in his, in his letter to the church in Rome, how that the law was intended to be and functioned effectively as a schoolmaster to bring men and women to Christ. And so it had its function, it had its purpose for the 14, 17, I believe 1700 years that the law was in effect from the time of Moses to the time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It served its purpose, but its purpose being served with the advent of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the law was fulfilled in him and effectively retired as a code of living that Christians have to abide by. Now, I choose that word very carefully because that makes it sound like the law was done away with. No, it was not done away with. It was fulfilled. 
And that's a very important distinction, okay? Uh, to say that it was done away with is to say that it was abolished, that it is no longer good and it just needs to be wiped completely off the deck. That's not what Christ did. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law in his coming and in his life and in his death, his burial, his resurrection, etc. He fulfilled that law. And therefore, we as believers, as Christians, we abide in Christ. And therefore, being in Christ, we fulfill the law by merit of being in him. Because trust me, if you want to bring yourself under the individual tenets of the law and live by that thing, knock yourself out. I'll call you in about three weeks and ask you how it's going. And if you're still doing pretty good, I'll call you in about three months and ask you how it's doing. And I'll check with you. I'll see if you're, if you're keeping all of the feasts, if you're, if you're keeping all of the holy days and the high holy days, and, and are you keeping the Sabbath? And oh, by the way, what day is that even? Because the calendar has been jiggered with so many times in the last 2,000 years. And, and then finally, when we get to Yom Kippur, okay, when we get to the Day of Atonement, I'm going to call you up and I'm going to ask you, how's it going today? So I guarantee you, you won't be fulfilling the law on that day. Because there is no priesthood. And there is no high priest. And there is no temple. And none of that can happen. It's like you want to be a law-abiding Jew, good luck. You're not going to be able to fulfill all of it because there have been things that have been rendered impossible by some of the events of the last 2,000 years. Really, I think the temple was destroyed within the first century after Christ, wasn't it? I don't remember exactly who it was. As soon as I hear his name, I'll remember it. But came in and just raised that thing to the ground, and that was it. And then, now the priesthood does exist. They're just not practicing as a priesthood. Well, what do they have in, in, in the substitute for that? Well, they have their rabbis, which are actually secular figures within the Jewish community. They're religious teachers, but they're considered secular, depending on which school of thought you embrace within all of that. And so why are we bringing all this up? Because he warned them, beware of these people, meaning dogs, evil workers, beware of the concision. He wasn't calling Jews dogs. He was telling them to beware of those people that would that would split and divide. Because remember, we talked about the root word within that word. Okay, but you know, out to incise something or to concise something or to circumcise something. All of those things derive from the same root word, which means to divide something with a knife. He says, beware of people that would cause divisions among you and that would bring you back under the bondage of the law and things like that. Another school of thought, which I think we brought out last week, is that it refers to bodily mutilations. But that would also apply here because under the law of Moses, under the law of Moses, a male child had to be circumcised on the eighth day after he was born. It was part of the covenant. It was part of the law, the contract with God. And so... Judaizers would have naturally sought to bring Gentile Christians who were uncircumcised under the requirement of that surgical procedure. So, well, is that something that we need to do as Christians? No, not really. If you live in a society that practices it anyway, anyway for cleanliness or health reasons, fine. But it doesn't mean anything anymore in the spiritual life where our relationship with God is concerned. 
It doesn't require any kind of surgery or bodily alteration or something like that, whether a good one or a bad one. So we shared some other things that that were peripherally uh, related to that last week. But let's go on. He says, for we are the circumcision. He was speaking of the circumcision of the heart, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He brought that out because the Jews with the law and under the law placed all of their confidence in the flesh. And that's the point that Paul begins to make in the very next few verses or throughout the remainder of this paragraph here down through verse six. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And when he says confidence in the flesh, he's referring to having confidence in the deeds that he had done and in the natural qualifications that he possessed as a Jew and some other things that he's going to bring up here in the next couple of verses. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And now he breaks out his resume. And it's an impressive one where the religion of the Jews is concerned. Paul's CV, Paul's resume is a real kicker. Listen to this. He says this beginning in verse five, circumcised the eighth day. That's the very first qualification under the law of Moses. It's the very first qualification that you be circumcised uh, on the eighth day after you were born. So what if, it was, what if it was a Gentile that converted to Judaism under the, and came under the law then? Then they had to be circumcised as well. And to this day, when a Gentile converts to, to, to the Jewish religion, to Judaism, they are also required to be circumcised as adults. Now think on that for a moment. And then when you... Get that shiver out of the back of your spine and, and, and you stop thinking on that sort of thing, then relax because you don't have to do that as a Christian. It was a Jewish requirement. So he says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. So he was a natural born Jew, okay, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. First four things that he mentions were things that he had absolutely no control over himself. He was born into them and was uh, blessed, you could say, with a special favor from God. If one wanted to have that kind of an attitude as a Jew, that they were uh, blessed by being a Jew. And, and under the law, that was a blessing. OK, so we'll grant that. That's fine. But obviously he had no control over his own circumcision being eight days old. What was he going to do? Say no, so, certainly not. And then, of course, born uh, of the stock of Israel, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had no control over these things. He was born into them, and that's fine. But the next things he says, as touching the law, which was that rule of law that governed all of Jewish life, okay? He said, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, why is that an important credential for him to mention? Well, because of what the Pharisees were supposed to be. And Jesus, even speaking of the Pharisees, said that they sat in Moses's seat, meaning that they, they, they received the law, they were masters of the law, they taught the law, or at least exercised the law. These were the men that strove to be the pinnacle of Jewish religious life. Like if you were going to be a dedicated religious Jew and you really wanted to be committed and you were a man, because I don't think that there were women Pharisees. Typically, women were not allowed in into specific religious orders, so to speak. Didn't mean that they weren't Jews. It just meant that they they were just they were all boys clubs. They really were. 
They were all boys' clubs. They were all men's clubs. And, and that's just, that's how their society was. And even Jewish men tended to look down upon their own women at, at, on a cultural level. And, it, uh, and so literacy wasn't particularly high among them. I'm not saying it was particularly high among the men either. It may have been, I don't know. But they really didn't encourage deep religious study among their women. And so Paul, bringing this out, he says he was of the tribe of Israel or of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. But then in the next thing he says, as touching the law, I was a Pharisee, meaning that this was something I did have a say over and I committed to the strictest path that I could find under the law. That's what he was saying there. I was a Pharisee. If you wanted to try, try to frame that in, in some kind of a modern equivalent, okay? You know, there are different monastic orders and religious orders found within different Christian denominations and different churches. You can, you can find these groups that, that ultra commit themselves to ultra strict paths upon which they walk. And you find some of that among the, you find a lot of that among the different Catholic monastic orders. You find some of that among what are called remnant churches, uh, that have, that have come out of the old Anabaptist orders from 400 years ago, like the Amish and the Mennonite, and how some of them, they're very, very strict in their lives and in the things that they allow. And they just really, they live their lives in, in a rigorous scaffolding of rules and restrictions. That's what the Pharisees were like. So if you can imagine, and you can imagine the strictest monastic order on the earth that I can think of, it, it's maybe a two-way tie between some of the, the Trappists, that's a certain monastic, that's actually a certain subset of a monastic order that you find in some places in America and in places overseas. The Trappists that live an extremely regimented and ultra-strict life. And then there's an order of nuns that I think even gives them a run for their money as far as strictness. And they're called, I believe they're called the Poor Clares. You may have heard of them, probably you have not. These are, these are women that uh, upon entering the monastery and taking their vows for their order, it's a lifelong vow, as with most monastic orders. It's a lifelong vow, but it includes a vow of silence. It includes a vow of silence. And so speaking is either minimized was only allowed at certain points at certain times and they're utterly cut off from the world. They never leave the monastery until the day they die. And even then, they probably just bury them on the monastery grounds. They're allowed to receive visitors from family once every 20 or 25 years. I recently read an article on this. That's why it's fresh in my mind. It's not like I've done any deep study on it, trust me. But, but it's there. Pharisees were of the same kind of mind. I'm not saying they were the same degree of strictness, okay? But they were of the same kind of mind. They approached life from a, from, from a, position, from a position of restriction. This is not allowed. This is not allowed. This is not allowed. And it's easy for a Christian to embrace that same kind of thinking too, especially if, you know, they're serious about getting sin out of their life. But you got to be careful with that sort of thing because it can very easily become a trap. And then you end up looking at your entire life as, you know, everything is wrong unless the Bible specifically says that it's right. That's not the Christianity I know. Now, to be certain, there's a lot of things that if you'll dig into the word of God, you'll learn that that God really doesn't want them in a person's life. And certainly don't let that scare you and keep you from reading and studying the Word of God. But we ought to approach life 
from a position of liberty. You have to approach it from a position, a position of liberty. And then as you grow in God, as you grow in the knowledge of God and in the grace of God, then you let the Spirit of God and the Word of God both speak to you, convict you in something that perhaps needs to be gone out of your life or is best not in your life or minimized, if not completely removed in your life. You let that speak to you. And then that provides your boundaries. Do you see the difference in approaches? One approaches life from a position of everything's wrong unless the Bible says it's okay. And the other approaches life from a position of liberty and recognizes that all good things were made by God and were made by God for us to enjoy. I said good things now. That's the clincher. It's like sin doesn't factor anywhere into that. But it's better to approach your Christian life that way. We have been made free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so let's take this same warning to heart. Beware of the concision. Beware of evil workers. Beware of any that would seek to bring you under bondage is something that the word of God does not really require us to be under bondage to. So he says, let's go back. We digressed a little bit, but it tied into the earlier point. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, etc. As touching the law of Pharisee, ultra strict, super rigid, totally dedicated to my religion. That's what that means. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a hostile Pharisee. He was one of those that had animosity towards the church of Almighty God because according to popular opinion, Christians were heretics. They had identified as the Messiah, a man that they were convinced was not the Messiah. And so he persecuted the church. That's how strong his zeal for his particular religion and his Jewishness was. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which was in the law, blameless. This is Paul's resume right here. This was, if he had it, they did things then like we do them now. This is what would be on Paul's doctoral, doctoral degree, his piece of paper framed on the wall, on his I love me wall in his home office, like so many people have. We called it that in the military. It's like that's where you put all, because the military is all about decorating people and giving awards and ribbons and certificates and citations. And, and you've completed you know this three-hour course on how to safely pick up trash from a yard. They give you a certificate for that. They give you a certificate for everything. It was quite ridiculous, okay? And then people that are in the military get these things. They're like, all right, well, whatever. You feel obliged to do something with it. So you stick it in a frame, put it on a wall. And you get enough of those, you put, that takes up your whole wall. You know, if you spend more than four years in the service, then you get an I love me wall because it has all your citations and your ribbons and your medals and your shadow boxes with all of your rank increases and all of that. But that's what he would have had of the stock of Israel, certificate of the tribe of Benjamin, his graduate certificate, his doctoral degree from the school of Pharisees, if they had such a thing. And I'm sure that they did, just not called that, you know. So he labels all of this stuff. He says, if anybody believes that they've got cause to have confidence in the flesh and the things that they have naturally done, I've got even more. And then he shares all of that. But then in the very next paragraph, he proceeds to take all of this stuff that he seems to have just gloried in and he begins to systematically, not even systematically, he just unilaterally dismantles it. Verse 7, but what things were gain to me those I counted loss for Christ. 
all of this stuff that he just finished talking about, his Jewishness by birth, his Hebrewness, his Benjaminness of being of the tribe of Benjamin, whatever particular advantage that gave him, his being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, all of these different things. He says, he counted, I counted loss. These things that were advantages to me in Jewish society, in Jewish circles, and all of that, I count as loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, verse 8, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. That is the real nail in the coffin right there. If we have any doubts at all as to whether or not Paul had any confidence in these earthly credentials of his, he just called them sewage. His Pharisee, his, his Pharisaic credentials, his tribe of Benjamin credentials, his pedigree, his lineage, all of that. What he was saying was in Christ, all of that meant nothing. And so I count it as a loss and not just as a loss, but as a loss, I'm more than as a willing loss because to attain Christ and to be in Christ and to be one of Christ's is worth the loss of all of these things. And rest assured, he lost all of those things. On the road to Damascus, when he had his eyes blinded first, opened later on, when he had his very personal direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected and glorified, appearing to him in a blinding light out of heaven. When he encountered that and it knocked him on his backside, see that preacher? That's scriptural precedent for being slain in the spirit. Nonsense. It has nothing to do with it. Paul was not a righteous man when that happened. Just saying. So we kind of fit that in there. Okay, in case you're wondering why we don't do all this slain in the spirit stuff in our church. It really isn't scriptural. Okay, it really isn't. It just isn't. So people can do what they want to do, but it, it has no biblical basis whatsoever. So let's move on. It's sensational, it's carnal, and so on. All right, let's move on. So he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, sewage, human waste, cast out, flushed down the toilet, that's what all of this other stuff that he mentioned in the previous paragraph, that's what all of that ultimately was worth to him in comparison to the glory of Christ our Savior and of being with him. So he says, let's read the whole sentence. He says, for whom I've lost the whole, well, from this point forward, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. He counted it as just part of the cost of winning Christ, okay? In verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, which ended up, by the way, being the stumbling block of the Jews. They sought to establish their own righteousness by the law of Moses, rather than trusting in God for their righteousness and then living out the law in obedience to that faith. They sought to establish their own righteousness. It became a boasting point with them. It's what he's saying. Be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which would be self-righteousness. He said, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the power of his and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now we've got to slow it down here because here's Paul making it really dense and uh, and very and compacting a lot of stuff into the back end of this of this paragraph here. Let's slow it down and let's back up. So he says, I counted all these things which other people might have counted as and which other people consider to be magnificent and impressive. My Jewishness, being of the tribe of Benjamin, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, blah, 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 being a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I already mentioned that, uh, persecuting the church because of my zeal and where the righteousness of the law of Moses was concerned, I was considered absolutely blameless. He takes all of those things that he just mentioned and he flushes, literally flushes them, well, not literally, but figuratively speaking, flushes them down the toilet, counting them as dumb. Why? so that he can attain Christ. Now, do you, see the, do you see the dynamics of this, okay? When we have confidence in our own flesh, the things we do, and we count that as the source of our righteousness, we have not attained Christ. Or we have forgotten where Christ actually is in this equation, okay? You have to let go of the self-righteousness, of the of thine own righteousness. You have to let go of, oh, well, I know I'm a Christian because of all these good things that I do. It's like, whoop, nope, but hit the brakes on that way of thinking right there. Because that was exactly Paul's old life way of thinking. The things I do and the things I am because of what I was born into. Well, I was born into a family of preachers. Oh, well, big deal. That just means you're more accountable. You better be living, right? You got no excuses. Amen? So my father was a deacon and my uncle was a pastor and my, 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 my great-grandfather was an evangelist and, or, or whatever. Or my mother was a prophetess. Really? Oh, well, maybe she was. But none of that means anything to you. It doesn't make you or me anything at all. That's the same kind of thinking that the Jews had. We have Abraham to our father. We have, we have the contract with God. But it didn't affect the way they lived. Or else the righteousness that was in the law would have been sufficient and Jesus would have never needed to come or die or rise again or make intercession for us from the right hand of God. So the lesson there is actually very clear. You have to let go of what a good boy you are or what a good girl you are and you've got to lay your confidence completely, totally and utterly in Christ alone. Well, what about the things that I've done? What about the, you know, when I was filled with the Holy Ghost? And what about when I was baptized in water and I made my confession of faith? And what about, you know, the fact that I come to church four times a week if I can? Doesn't that count for anything? Not as far as salvation goes, no. Now those things are good and are right and are needful, certainly. What I'm saying is you can't claim them as a credential to boast from. You see how that works? It doesn't work that way. All of those things, 
And receive the Holy Spirit. Well, getting saved, first of all, that's how we enter into the spiritual life and, and become alive in Christ and dead to sin and all of that. So you got saved? Okay, well, that was good. But that was a gift from God. It's like, okay, well, then I got, then I received the Holy Ghost. Okay, that's good. But that was a gift from God. Amen? So, well, then I was baptized in water. That's good. You're, you're on the right track. But that was simply obedience of a good conscience toward the commandment of God. And, well, I attend church over and over and over again. I'm, I'm in church all the time. That's good because you ought to, because wherever there's a gathering of Christians together, we ought to be there because there's a blessing in it. And it, it's a kind of service to God. We're certainly offering up praise and worship, which we ought to do. And we're learning of God, and so we... We gain from that also. You could even call that, you can call that reasonable service. You can call that a gift from God. You can call it all of those things because it is. But none of those things are what makes us righteous, not in the least. It is Him. It is He who makes us righteous. And therefore, all of these other things. Do we see how that really works? And it's so easy to get it backwards. And many groups at many times over, over the last 2,000 years have gotten it backwards. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. Our salvation is in God alone. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. I had all these other things that were impressive to other people, but I lost them all and willingly gave them up so that I could attain Christ. What was he saying? It's the cost of getting saved. Or it's the cost of being saved. It's the cost of apprehending Christ and of, and of being found in Him. Let's use Paul's own language there in verse 9. And be found in Him. I count all these things uh, as loss. I count them as done. I've suffered the loss of all these things that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And then he, sta then he starts talking about why. In the very next verse, in verse 10, he says, that I may know Him. And... That word's pretty intimate. When you know someone, it speaks of a degree of intimacy that is beyond that level of even casual acquaintance. Certainly it's beyond that of a perfect stranger, but it's also beyond that of even a casual acquaintance. I know Reverend Ryder. known him for quite a few years. Uh, not, not so well at the beginning, certainly better than then. Back then, I didn't really know you. I knew who you were, but... Over the years, especially since we've been here, we've actually become very well acquainted. And so I can say in full confidence, I know him. Well, what's one of the things that, that substantiates that claim? Well, goodness, how, how much work have we done together? Probably not enough, but there's plenty more to do. Amen. And so there's lots of opportunity. You know, you know we've, we've worked on projects together. We've worked on jobs. We've worked in this entire ministry together. And we've done it for three and a half years now. We've labored together. We've prayed together. We've gone soul winning together. We've done all these different things together. We've conversed often one with another and at a deeper level than just talking about the news and the weather. So I can say with full confidence... I know Reverend Ryder. I think he can say with full confidence that he knows me. Paul was saying that I may know him. That I may have that same intimacy of a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Did you know you can do that? So, well, that was easy. He was an apostle. Ah, no, doesn't mean it was easy. 
because Paul didn't even get saved until after Jesus was resurrected and returned to the Father in glory and sat down in majesty on high. When Paul first met Jesus, Jesus was already back home with the Father. And so Paul did not have that three years of walking with Christ and, and hearing his teachings and, and, and beholding the miracles or even participating in them. Paul didn't have any of that. Yet he still had this kind of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if he could, so can you and I. Do you see what a blessing it was that Paul came along so late after the fact? And yet he was the one that ended up writing the, the overwhelming majority of the New Testament. It didn't fall to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, any of the men that penned uh, different gospel accounts. It didn't fall to Jude. It didn't fall to Peter. And Peter, Peter was a big, big name and still is. Okay? Accomplished much and fulfilled a singular role within the church. It didn't even fall to him. It fell to this, it fell to this, excuse the expression, but it fell to this Johnny come lately. Because he was. He was late to the party. But man, when he got to the party, he sure made his time count. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So he's not just talking about knowing Christ on an intimate friendship level or, or even a brotherly level, because that's actually what it's what it needs to be. Christ, Jesus, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. That brother that sticks closer than a brother. Because if God is our father, then Jesus is absolutely our brother. Amen? He really is. That's Bible. That's right out of here. Okay? And so, not just to have that kind of a relationship, not just know him, but also know the power of his resurrection. Because he was just talking about that. No, he talks about that in verse 11. I just got ahead of myself. He talks about knowing the power of his resurrection. What does he even mean by that? Well, how can you know something except you experience it? How could I know Reverend DeRyder is a friend or Brother Bob is a friend or Brother Anthony is a friend or any of you as friends or family in Christ if I did not experience a, a measure of the same life with you? Anywhere from one to several times a week, our lives intersect here in the house of God or perhaps outside the house of God, doing something for God or something like that, something in the service of God or just fellowshipping. We experience, there's experience comes with knowledge. He said, if I might know the power of his resurrection, it means, it means that he hopes, he hoped to experience that same resurrection himself, didn't he? Don't we all have the same hope? The Bible speaks about a resurrection. I know we haven't talked a whole lot about end times in our church here because we really try to focus on living for God right now. Okay, the end times are going to take care of themselves. Trust me. All that's going to happen whether we're walking around on the earth or not. But part of that is an event called the resurrection. And that is absolutely going to happen. And if we are, if we are Christians when we die, if we are right with God, we love God and we're walking with God when we die, then we have a place in that resurrection. It's going to happen. And when the dead in Christ rise... We're going to be part of that. And we will arise from the grave. We're going to be resurrected in power and in glory and in light and in immortality. And we are going to be as he is, for we will see him as he is. And we will be like him. And the Bible says, New Testament says, that we will 
There we will meet him in the air, and there will we ever be with the Lord. And so we need to have a study on that actual event here sometime soon, just to iron that out, clear up any questions, and maybe clarify our, our hopes in him. But he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, I was down with everything until you got to that. No, 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 I don't want a fellowship of his sufferings. What are you talking about? They crucified him. Oh, yes, I know. I've read the Bible too. But that's part of the package. Would we be his disciples? We have to be willing to have fellowship in his sufferings as well. Remember what he said later on in the Gospels. He spoke to one of his own disciples. He said, the master, excuse me, the disciple is not greater or above his master. It is enough that his disciple can be as his master on the same level. He's never above his master. If they hated Jesus, they will hate us. And many of them already do. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us to whatever degree. To whatever degree. Sometimes it's really light and it's, it's a nothing thing. Sometimes it's, it's, it's fierce. And, and it can be hard to go through. But... We have it here, but we see that in Paul's language, he wasn't trying to avoid it. He said, I gave up all of these things that were honorable and that were considered awesome so that I might attain Christ, that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection and that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings. It wasn't that Paul was a glutton for punishment. He wasn't looking for pain. He just wanted to know Christ as good as he possibly could. And that includes being a partaker to whatever measure the Lord ordains means being a partaker in his sufferings as well. But so what about that? So what of it? We still have a part in his resurrection, don't we? And so surely, whatever we would go through in this life has got to be worth that. It's got to be worth it all if we see that glorious day uh, arise and we rise up again in a glorified body never to taste of death or pain or suffering or illness again, ever. Let's bring it to a close here. He said, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. What was he saying there? By any means. That's an extreme thing to say. That means that it doesn't matter what comes down the pike, what kind of price tag gets attached to this thing that I, Paul, am striving for. By any means, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Because let me tell you something. If you attain to the resurrection of the dead, you're home free. If you die in Christ, you are home free. If you are his, when your life on when your mortal life on the earth comes to an end, either by the grave or by the rapture, whether by sickness or by, by, by sickness or by, by injury or accident or by murder or by violence or by or by natural causes of peace in your sleep, by whatever means that your natural life as you know it right now comes to an end, the Bible makes it very clear where we will be. Be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then you have your place reserved in that resurrection of the dead. So you'll go and you'll be in heaven, certainly. That's not going to be your eternal abode. I'm opening up a can of worms there. But we'll save that can of worms maybe for the next Bible study, okay? You'll be there only for as long as it takes for God to finish wrapping things up here on the earth. And then when that last trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise you will be reunited with your body. But even if it's 10,000 years from now, 
It's, it's not going to be a rotted, decomposed body or fossilized in the ground. It's going to be brand new, beautifully prepared to receive you to live in it for eternity. And then there will be an eternally perfect future for you and us all with God in his kingdom. Where we say, it's worth it. It is worth it. Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God, being uh, being like a pearl of great price and being like a treasure hid in a field. It's worth everything that you can possibly have. Everything that you have. It's worth everything that you could possibly pay in order to acquire it. Not that it works that way, but it gives you an idea on the value of it. And likewise, that kind of a, that kind of a relationship with Christ, it's worth it. It's worth you looking at your master's degree on the wall and saying, that's cool and all, and it's an ad- maybe it's an advantage in this life, but compared to the kingdom of heaven, that thing is worth nothing. It's worth you looking at your career. And I'm not bad-mouthing careers, okay? Praise God, people have them, and, and you can be successful in them. You, you do them well, and as under the Lord. Turn it into a worship and a service to God, so to speak. But it, it's worth it to look at your career and have the attitude of, you know what, this is good, but if God would have me to give this thing up, I'd totally do it. Because it's worth it to have Jesus in my life. It's worth the loss of all things. If so be that has to happen. I'm not saying that it does. Most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time you just have to give up your sin and die to yourself for a while. and Just live in the liberty and the light of Almighty God. But it's worth having that attitude. It's worth recognizing that to know Christ, to attain Christ and to know Him and, and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection is worth the loss of all things in this life, if need be. Brethren, I'm telling you, it's worth it. Giving up a few things. You know what? If I could wind the clock back, I would not go back to reapprehend any of those things that I let go for his sake. What I have in him is far, far greater, far, far better. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.